Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Raphael Cormack, author of my favorite book so far this year, Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties. Dr. Cormack has a PhD in Egyptian theater from the University of Edinburgh. His thesis was on Arabic translations and adaptations of Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. He is currently a visiting researcher at Columbia University and works as an editor, writer, and translator from Arabic. In addition to Midnight in Cairo, he has edited two collections of short stories from Arabic, The Book of Cairo and The Book of Khartoum. Dr. Cormack and I will be talking about the amazing women entertainers of Egypt, their contributions to Egyptian feminism, the rivalry between Munira al-Madaya and Umm Kathum, the two most popular entertainers of their times, and much more. My conversation with Raphael Cormack, author of Midnight in Cairo, begins now. Raphael, welcome to On the Middle East. Hi, um, yeah, good to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Before we get into the 1920s and some of the amazing stories you present about the divas of that era, I love your description in the early part of the book about the pre-turn of the 20th century neighborhood where this all happens as Bakia. Briefly set the stage for us for those who have not read the book. Cairo and its early theater scene was becoming a hub for Levantine and other performers, a real crossroads with Egyptian talent, a destination for those seeking entertainment and even getting recognition in Europe. So tell us you start in 1890s or so. Tell us a little about that period and how it all begins. Yeah, so the, so the 1920s is, is sort of always regarded as the real golden age. But but in the book, I, yeah, I try and take it a little further back and sort of put the beginning of Egypt's modern entertainment scene uh, at the end of the 19th century and really all uh, focused around this area called Esbakea, uh, which was... Uh, Around in the, in the middle, there was a there was a, a set of gardens which were laid out by a Parisian gardener actually, and the the Khadiv, the ruler of Egypt, had uh, paid for them to be laid out. He paid for a new opera house, a new theatre, a circus. That was all in the kind of 1860s. And as that area became kind of the place where people would go to see theatre or entertainment, many many more places sprung up. So you know, bars sprung up, cafes some sort of less uh, reputable places, you know, gambling dens and, and hashish houses and this kind of thing. Uh, and although the Khadiv had envisioned a kind of elite European style of entertainment, so opera in French and Italian, what ended up actually gathering around that area was much more Arabic theater, uh, Arabic dancers, uh, you know, the, uh, sort of traditional music hall kind of scene. And as you say, Cairo became really the place in the Middle East and the end of the 19th century where everyone came and, and set up their troops. So Arabic theater had kind of begun, at least as we know theater, there was a much 
longer performance tradition before that, but Arabic theatre had begun really in what's now Lebanon and, and Syria, you know, Damascus and, and Beirut being the two main cities. But at the end of the 19th century, there was, there was more money in Egypt, the, the climate was a little bit freer, less censorship. Uh, and so all of the theatre troops would really come to Egypt to set up, build their own little theatres and um, put on plays. I mean, the plays tended to be Arabic translations of classic European plays, Shakespeare and, and French, French playwrights like Corneille and Racine. And as time went by, Egyptians and, and other Arab speaking people began to write their own plays too. Uh, but so at the end of the 19th century, we have in Cairo, the beginnings really of what will turn into the golden age, uh, filled with um, theater, dance hall, uh, singing, as well as, as I said, some slightly less salubrious kinds of entertainment. And, and, and in this period too, was the start of the moral condemnation of the nightlife scene and this area. So people in, in the press would start, were starting at this time to write articles saying the youth of the nation is kind of throwing away their money and their livelihood in these uh, dens of iniquity, basically. Um, what I, and what I was particularly interested in, so, so this book charts the history of Cairo's nightlife through some of the most important women, the most powerful women who ran it, you know, ran casinos, ran uh, nightclub, not casinos, sorry, um, dance halls, ran theater troops. And in the 1890s, the first real female star of Cairo's nightlife began her career, uh, Shafiqa Iptia, Shafiqa the Copt, as she was known. And she, at this time, had her own nightclub where she put on uh, late night entertainment. And we have, in fact, surviving some secret police reports of the policemen who used to go see what was going on in these nightclubs. And they talk quite a lot about hers, how she paid off policemen, how she was actually allegedly having an affair with a British policeman uh, in order to sort of smooth the business over of running a nightclub in the, in the 1890s. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's really where it all began. It's a, it's a, the 1890s is sort of just as fascinating as, as the 1920s in many ways, but there's much less material to kind of get your, get your teeth stuck into. It's in the 1920s, really, that this culture of celebrity that I talk about a lot in the book really takes off. Let's stay on Shafika for just a minute, because again, a fascinating figure and lots of trends here that again, you develop later with, in, with the 1920s uh, personalities. First, tell us a little about the uh, Taktuka and what later we began to refer to as belly dancing and how that all fit in and challenge some of the norms of the day. And, and she also became quite popular, not just in Egypt, but in the region. And you describe even a tour she did in Paris at one point. Yes, yeah, she is. I mean, one of the interesting thing about, about Shafika is she is kind of serves as a blueprint for how we treat the lives of the celebrities that came after her. It's, it's sometimes difficult to have, uh, to know exactly really what's going on with her because beyond these, these secret police files, a few old records, which she released in the early 20th century and, and sort of some references to her, 
her life is much is much murkier than the other stars that that we see. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what she is credited with doing is uh, inventing, among other things, this dance called the uh, the candelabra dance, the Roxas Shamaden, uh, and it was in which she balanced a, a set a candlestick on her head, basically, and danced. And yeah, as you were saying, the 1890s is this time when belly dance is really becoming, if we want to call it belly dance even, becoming a, a global phenomenon. Uh, so it's been going, you know, dance, female dance of some kind definitely went on throughout the 19th century and probably resembled what you got in the nightclubs of the 1860s, 70s, 80s and 90s. But what happened in, in the 1890s actually is um, the Chicago World's Exhibition in, in White City, the World's Columbian Exposition, in which people from all over the world came to put on performances. And one of the most popular performances at the at the World's Fair was the what they called the Egyptian Theatre, which featured belly dance, or what one might call belly dance. They would not have called it themselves belly dance, but in America that's what it, and in Europe, that's what it was interpreted as. Uh, and it took off, I mean, hugely in America, it was a smash. Uh, this woman called Little Egypt became a celebrity. She toured, she went to New York. In fact, probably lots of different people performed under the name Little Egypt and they traveled. In New York, the show was shut down. It became very, very controversial because it was seen as, uh, you know, as in many places it was danced like this was seen as immoral, basically. And police would come in and raid shows. Um, but, you know, despite or perhaps slightly because of that, it became hugely popular and then spread sort of in, in this strange way, spread back to Egypt in the late 19th century. So, I mean, there is evidence of, of dancers who performed in America coming to Egypt and dancing there. Uh, and then this is when it, it sort of becomes belly dance. It's, it's this very strange kind of mixing of different cultures. And, you know, one culture takes something and then repackages it and it gets exported back to the culture in which they've taken it from. And in the early 20th century in Egypt, they actually ban what is called belly dance, uh, Roxel Button, uh, literally in Arabic, yeah, dance of the, of the belly, uh, and uh, and shut down people when they do this particular dance. And one, one policeman in Egypt actually describes a scene uh, in which a policeman comes in thinking he's gonna find belly dance uh, but then the dancer just turns around uh, and gives them what he calls Danse de la Lune, the moon dance, and the policeman apparently can't shut it down because uh, he's not dancing. The wood dancer is not dancing with his with her, sorry, belly. Uh, so it's, um, and yes, as you said, these, these world's expositions become uh, a popular site of belly dance that people go to them to see it. And Javi el Katia went to Paris in the, early 20th century, so the legend goes, uh, and danced at the Paris Exposition there, uh, won sort of worldwide fame, you know, appeared in, in Parisian magazines, and then came back to Egypt, thick with stories of, uh, of what was going on in Paris, and then that becomes a big, a big part of her myth as well later. And tell us about the uh, Taktuka, because this was uh, an innovation that uh, Shafika started, I think, uh, and that became part of the performance and that was also 
different from traditional singing? Yeah, so the Taktuka is this uh, kind of song which really dominates in, in the 1920s, but probably, yeah, as you say, gets going. I mean, Shafiq Al-Kaptiya recorded some, uh, gets going in the early 20th century. Its origins are sort of much debated, uh, said to be before, originally performed at weddings uh, and by women. Um, but then what really... Uh, shoots the taktuka, which is a kind of, you know, which in the 1910s and 20s becomes this sort of light, sometimes comic, sometimes romantic song, which goes on for about three minutes, three or four or, or six, and for reasons which you will see, uh, and becomes sort of the great song of the nightclub stages. What really shoots it to popularity is the rise of recording technology. So 78 RPM records, which come into Egypt in the early 20th century, really, and in the 1910s and 20s, get going either from international companies or from companies who have set up in Cairo and a number of record companies set up in Cairo. And they found that these taktukas, as well as being sort of the most popular songs, also nicely fit onto a record. And so it's one of this, an example of how technology and a genre of music kind of have this symbiotic relationship and the taktuka shifts to make it uh, sort of a light popular song that can easily fit into a record but it is picked originally because it can you know because it can fit in this record and it shapes into this thing and by the 1920s it becomes uh, the soundtrack of Cairo's cabarets and a lot of the time actually the songs reference things going on in cabarets and talk about you know the habitués of the cabarets too. So yeah, it becomes the great sort of hit making genre of the 1920s. And that leads us to Munira al Madiya, who comes into her own in the 1910s, uh, the early 20th century, and becomes one of the biggest musical stars and theater stars in Egypt and develops over time a rivalry with Um Kathum. And we'll get into that shortly, but I want to stay with Munira for just a second because it, it's worth worth discussing her. Uh, she obviously gets um, a, a lot of uh, popularity due to the emergence of, of the records at this time. And not, and not only fame, but she also achieves a degree of, of power in the industry too, even though this was still very much a man's world. So tell us a little about Munira and her influence, especially in the early period. Yeah, Munira is, is a fascinating figure. I mean, perhaps my, my favorite figure in the whole book. And she was in the, by the twenties and probably before, I mean, the biggest female star in Egypt. I, I, I mean, she's nowhere near as well remembered as Um Kalsum, who I think many, many people know, but if you are in the 1920s and you ask someone who's the biggest uh, female star in Egypt, they would, they would almost all say Munir al-Mahdeh. And, and she's fascinating because as you say, her career gets going 1905-ish, she comes to Cairo. So in this early period that we were kind of talking about, or at the very end of this early period, Shifi el period, she comes, becomes, uh, a popular nightclub singer. By the 1910s, she's 
running her she seems to be at least it's before the first world war it's very hard to really narrow anything down but seems to be running her own cabaret nights whether or not she owns the um the cabaret is, is up for debate and during the first world war is massively successful but i mean something important happens to cairo's nightlife scene uh, during the first world war which is the british occupy the country officially before the first world war they'd been sort of semi in control in this uh, kind of working behind the scenes in what's known as a veiled protectorate but during the first world war they occupy the country lots of british troops and troops from all over the british empire move into cairo a lot of them cause big trouble in Esbakea in this nightclub scene going to uh, bars uh, cabarets and and brothels which I, which I didn't mention before but were also part of this whole um, kind of spectrum of uh, of things on offer in Esbakea there was a, there was a red light district so they went there caused a lot of trouble the British authorities got very worried that the soldiers were causing trouble and so shut down most of the cabarets including Munira Mateus and, and she was at that point you know a great star she, by this time, she was releasing hit records and, and making quite a lot of money from it. And what she did, which kind of dictates uh, the shape of her career from, uh, from many of the rest of the decade, she's very quick to adapt. So what she does is packs in the nightclub singing and starts her own theater troupe uh, in which she is an actress, singer, and dancer she performs i suspect performs a number of the same songs from her nightclub set but just this time in the in the uh, role in the sort of context of the theater two years so that, so the nightclubs are closed down in 1915 two years later munira mahdia releases the first arabic opera a, a sort of arabic version of carmen which is massively popular and she kind of she very heavily regulates the performances so she'll give one which is packed out with people the first performance of Carmen was you know people were fighting on the way to get to their seats and the police had to break things up uh, but then she waits a few weeks before she gives another one so the same effect then happens again you know so quite a savvy move uh, and then and after then she she really dominates and, and as you say has a lot of control over she is running this theater troupe and she herself uh, is cutting deals with record companies to release the hits and she manages to to make quite a lot of money and one one thing that really shows this uh, and really shows uh, as i try to argue in my book uh, that the fact that these women are making money for themselves is so important for their independence is in 1924 she after several years of uh, an increasingly bad marriage. Uh, we don't know the details of what's bad about the marriage, but she says, you know, it's got terrible. She suspects maybe that he's stealing from her and it may have been abusive. Anyway, in 1924, she manages to pay him off and get a divorce because in this time, uh, women needed a husband's permission for a divorce. Uh, but because she has got this hugely successful career, she's making her own money. She is, she is able to do that. And this is kind of a, a recurring theme throughout the 1920s that these stars use their money uh, that they have made to really exert their independence. 
You know, when all this occurs, you mentioned the British occupation uh, during World War One, and then there was the 1919 protests and riots against British rule. And the nationalist and post-colonial themes also tend to play out in this field as well, in terms of the theater district, the the uh, performers of this era. And after World War One, when Europe is picking up the pieces, uh, many people start to come to Egypt to look for entertainment. It was un- unaffected in terms of the war itself. Uh, there was there was no fighting there, and it also becomes a major hub. So tell us about the 1919 protests and the beginning of the nationalist and post-colonial themes and how these continue to play out. Yeah, and the 1919 protests are hugely important background to this sort of vibrant culture of the 1920s. So the short story of them is, uh, yeah, as I said, the British had occupied uh, Egypt during the war, but even before then, they'd been really exerting a lot of uh, control over Egypt, and there'd been a growing nationalist movement. By the end of the First World War, due to the fact that the British had really been, uh, you know, sucking Egypt dry during the First World War, taking supplies, forcing a lot of people into uh, the war effort, not strictly speaking fighting, but working in labor corps and things. By the end, everyone's extremely fed up of Egypt. So what, what, they, what Egyptian nationalist politicians try and do is go to the Paris Peace Conference and uh, sue for their right to independence, you know, appeal to this spirit of national self-determination that's apparently going around. Uh, this is what they intend to do at least, but the British arrest these politicians, send them into exile and, and forbid them from doing it, uh, which leads to massive public uh, outcry, people coming out in the streets to demonstrate. Uh, the British then respond to that with violence uh, and, and and everything spirals sort of out of control for a little while. Uh, it's, it's eventually uh, the, the politicians are then returned from exile. Egypt is, after several years, given independence, uh, and that's in, in 22. Uh, and so what we have in the 1920s is this kind of moment of national jubilation in one way, this, this time of, of 1919 to, to throughout the early 1920s is remembered by Egyptians as this moment of great national unity, standing up against a British occupier, uh, and a time when the whole nation came together, including women, including, in fact, many of the uh, actresses and singers who were in the book, they also participated in these protests, uh, which were partially successful. So Britain gives Egypt independence, although in a slightly qualified way, which throughout the 20s, 30s and 40s will continue to be a big subject of, uh, of pushback. Uh, but here you have a newly independent country and on the stages of Cairo, people are celebrating that and also asking, well, what now does it mean to be Egyptian? Uh, who, who are we? And, and you know, one of the most famous uh, songs of the period is uh, by Saeed Darwish, the music, but the Ahiri wrote the lyrics, uh, which celebrates this kind of religious unity of Egypt. You know, he says, oh, don't say, Muslim, Christian, or Jewish, we're all, all go back to the same ancestors, we're all, all one, basically. 
And there is this sense of, of sort of great national unity and the sense that things can be, can be different. And this plays out as well in, um, uh, for women uh, who in the, these 1920s as well, there's a big sense that women are moving into the public sphere uh, and, and women can be sort of public figures, uh, at least which before the First World War was, was much more uncommon. Um, so Cairo is in this sort of cultural boom. It's also in a, in a kind of economic boom. Right? As you said, lots of people are now, are now coming to Cairo, investing money, coming from Europe, which has been devastated by the war. Uh, and in fact, um, many people from Europe come to be performers in, in Cairo's nightlife. So a lot of the dancers and singers uh, came from Eastern Europe or from France. Uh, and in the 20s, Cairo really has the sense that it's kind of a, a big world center. And as everyone says, one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. Just uh, mention briefly, if you could, you have a nice uh, vignette in there around this period about Billy Brooks and George Duncan and the context yeah. of this boom. But tell us about these them. Are, these are, are two fasc fascinating men who uh, yeah, kick off one of my chapters who left America in the 1870s as part of a, uh, a minstrel show, basically an Uncle Tom's Cabin show, which was to tour around Europe for a few years. Uh, they were born in, one was born in Virginia. The other one was born, I think in Kentucky. Uh, they went with this show and after a couple of years, they were offered the choice, either come back to America or cash in your return ticket, take the money and keep performing. And this is what they did. They performed around all of Europe for the next several decades of uh, Russia, you know, Germany, Belgium, they mentioned, until in 1914, they end up in Cairo and they decide they quite like it and decide that they're going to stay. And they, in the 1920s, they send back these letters to the, the Chicago Defender, an African-American newspaper, uh, basically detailing in in you know in quite in quite a lot of length what it's like to be a jazz performer in the early 1920s in Cairo. So they start a jazz band, and and, and they mention that they've got you know Greeks. Uh, there's a, a a Russian Jewish woman playing the drums. Uh, they also at one point bring in an Egyptian guy to play the drums. Uh, there's all this sort of whole extremely diverse cast of characters playing not even in the biggest jazz band in Cairo actually they, they were not there was a, another man who was playing in a, in a hotel who was sort of the great jazz star in Cairo these guys were sort of the second or third biggest jazz stars in Cairo but we have their what we have is their story and they give us this really great window into what it's like to be a everyday gigging musician in the 1920s in Cairo. Let's talk a little about Rosal Youssef, um, hugely formidable figure and personality. And another theme that plays out in the 1920s is that as these women gain audience and power and influence in the industry, they are insulted as, quote, being like a man. This was something that was said of, of Rose. And it kind of plays on some of the cross-dressing that was going on in the theater at the time. And it also amplifies the sexism and classism of that era. 
Rose started a major magazine about theater and culture. She established a theatrical institute uh, that was eventually shut down. So tell us about a little about her and her story. Uh, yeah, I'll start with that, and then we'll we'll get to this point about being being called a man afterwards. But uh, yeah, I mean, Rose is in some ways, you know, emblematic of uh, a lot of the women in this book, at least, in that she she came from uh, really poverty. Essentially, she she was not actually Egyptian. She she grew up in uh, she was born in Tripoli in in Lebanon, what's now Lebanon. Uh, ended up through a sort of a very unclear set of circumstances, ended up in Alexandria as a very young girl alone, sort of abandoned probably. Uh, and she appealed to someone to give her the train ticket fare to Cairo, which she, which she got uh, and wound up first sort of working backstage at a, at a theater troupe in Esbakea as there were Quite a number in the early 20th century, still as a, a probably as a young teenager, uh, until she tells this story of how she, when she was going through the costumes one night, uh, she found the costume of Mary Tudor, uh, the, the British Queen, put it on and sort of walked through Cairo in it, which convinced her that she wanted to tread the boards, uh, which she which she did and became a, a very successful vaudeville first uh, theatre performer in the 1910s. Uh, like as is you know, also a common theme for for many of the women we've seen, uh, she skirted with the with uh, the with within and without the realms of respectability. So a lot of people criticised her performances for being sort of too lewd. One of her famous plays was called "Don't Walk Around Naked Like That," and people accused her of appearing on stage naked, which she didn't actually, but they were just misinterpreting the title. Um, Anyway, she so she managed to become a successful vaudeville star. Then, in the nineteen twenties, a sort of successful actress in slightly more respectable theatre. And by nineteen twenty-five, she was sort of the big female star, the biggest female star of the biggest um, theatrical company in Egypt, a company run by a man called Yusuf Wahbi. So she had been from a girl abandoned in her very early teens in Alexandria, she had reached a measure of success, like a, a large measure of success. But what she did next uh, was really, um, really sort of sealed the deal and was was the, the very, was the exceptional thing that she did. So, I mean, as we've already said with Munir Mahdeh, having money was important for having independence. But what she did was she saw I mean, perhaps looking at how the theatre press, press had treated her throughout her career, which was not well, she saw there was power in owning the means of production of, of opinion, basically. Uh, and so she started her own magazine. She decided in the mid-1920s, that's what she was going to do. She gave it her own name, uh, because why not? And, and really worked extremely hard putting it together as at first it was largely an arts magazine. She she wanted it to be a sort of magazine that would A, take theatre seriously, but also deal with the arts more seriously. And then um, most magazines that were set up in the mid-1920s folded after about a year or two. But, I mean, it seems to be mostly through bloody hard work. She managed to keep it going 
And then throughout the 1920s, it became more political. And throughout the 1930s, it sort of shifted in tone a bit, but kept going and actually still functions today as a publishing house and as a newspaper uh, and other things. So, so what Rosa Yusuf's story shows uh, is, uh, I mean, she is like the great example of what this theatre scene offered some women, which was the opportunity to really rise from essentially nothing to owning your own magazine and then publishing house and, and living a, you know, a settled life. Uh, as you, I mean, to go on to what you, what you said before about her being called a man, uh, yes, uh, so this comes from a story about, actually about her son who says, oh, um, oh you're really more like a man, mom, and then to which she, to which she um, responds, no, that she's very much a woman. And in fact, if she had not been born a woman, she'd wish she had been, which was a, which is a, a riff on a, a, an Egyptian nationalist slogan, which is people who haven't been born Egyptian wish they had been. But it's not just Rosal Youssef who is accused of being a man. I mean, so many of these great stars are accused of being masculine. Uh, Fasma Rushdie, who we haven't touched upon yet, but who ran uh, the one of the two great theatre troops of the late 1920s. Uh, she, he, she actually took Rosal Youssef's place uh, when Rosal Youssef retired to start the magazine. Fatma Rushdie took her place, became a great theatre star, is always accused of being a man. And, and Munir al-Mahdeya, uh, what she does, and in part, I think this is a kind of playing around with this stereotype that these powerful female performers are very masculine. She, Munira Mahdea, likes to dress up as a man, take pictures of it, and, and have them sent into the newspapers. And in the mid-1920s, many of the newspapers are, are reprinting pictures of Munira Mahdea wearing a, you know, a tarbush in a suit or or dressing up in, in various different ways as, as a man. I mean, it's not only Munira Mahdea that did this, actually many people did, but she is the most prolific one. And in part, uh, it's, I mean, it's what they're doing is testing out the boundaries of both sort of gender and also the gender roles uh, that men and women are deemed, you know, that it's deemed that men and women should have. So, I mean, this is a time in the 1920s when women, as I said before, were really entering into the public sphere on a much larger scale than they had before. And that's a pushback in, in much of the press, you know, worrying that they're taking on much too male roles, uh, hence why so many of them get accused of, of being like men. Uh, and a lot of the women seem to be playing around with this when they themselves dress up in male clothes and, and send the pictures into the press. You mentioned Fatima Rushdie. She represents another level of, let's say, superstardom. Uh, she's the, the, a big star of the emerging Egyptian cinema, which becomes so popular. And she was known as the Sarah Bernhardt of Egypt. And I think it's sometimes forgotten the international impact during that era of Sarah Bernhardt um, and Fatima continued making feel, films for decades, but kind of ends up dying in obscurity. Yeah, uh, she is. I mean, she yeah, she's phenomenal. And not only is Fatima Rushdie this huge star in Egypt, 
she really invests in touring a lot in the Middle East. Uh, so she is uh, probably the first person to take a touring theatrical troupe to Iraq, uh, which she does uh, in, in the late 1920s, uh, as well as in the summer touring in, um, in the Levant uh, and touring in, in North Africa. So as, as a theater star, she becomes huge in Cairo and then also becomes huge in the Middle East. Uh, and then, yes, as you say, moves into cinema, which is which is another part of the end of this story of, of what happens to this golden age, you know, in a lot of ways it goes into the cinema and takes control, is, I believe, the first woman, first woman to be credited at least with starring in directing and writing uh, her own feature film, uh, which is in 1933. Uh, and in fact, I mean, the beginning of Egyptian cinema in general is extremely, is really pushed by women. Uh, so the first woman to to make a um, fully, what is it called in quotes, Egyptian film, Aziza Amir in, in, in the mid 1920s, uh, the first person to make an Egyptian film is a woman. And then uh, many of the great kind of actresses turned producers turned filmmakers of this time are women and I, I don't really have an explanation for exactly why this is is the case and by the late 1930s they're starting to be replaced by by men and, and, and all of the more famous directors of the 1930s are men but in this very early period it's really women who are pushing the film industry in Egypt. Let's move now to Um Khathum. Uh, many of our listeners will, will know well and Tell us about her impact but in the context of her, her role, not just as a, a towering figure, but how she contrasted with uh, Munira and Rosal Youssef. She, um, uh, Kathum didn't sing uh, Taktuka. She emphasized more traditional and sometimes religious themes, and sometimes yeah. to the frustration of her, her audiences. <laughs> and uh, during this time, as you mentioned at the beginning, Munira remained a huge name uh, in the, not just in Egypt, but in the Arab world as well. But it's Um Kathum, who people know, and probably most people don't know about Munira. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's many, many reasons for why Um Kathum became so famous. And I mean, people know her now probably more from her period in the, in the 50s and 60s. That's the more iconic um Kalsum era, but really she, her career began in this 1920s on the same stages as people like Munira and, and yes, Rosa Yusuf. But uh, she is, I mean, she's re her real rivalry was with Munira Mahdea and there was, you know, Munira was the big name on the, on the scene and Um Kalsum was this kind of young upstart. Uh, but they were, and they, throughout the 1920s, the press is filled with all these rumors about what's going on or whether or not uh, Munir al-Mahdeh is trying to sabotage Um Kalsum's career uh, and all this stuff. But they were, as you say, what they seem to be to me is polar opposites of how to construct a celebrity image. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about the 1920s in Egypt is it's the first time really uh, that we can see celebrity, you know, 
the image of a celebrity emerging. I mean, as you said before, we, we can see it with Sarah Bernhardt globally a little earlier, uh, but for reasons, I think probably mostly reasons that in the 1920s there was a huge entertainment press rose, we can kind of track it in the 1920s. And Um Kalsum and Munira Matea form these two opposite poles of how to do it. Munira is, uh, you know, as we say, sending in pictures of herself dressed as a man to the newspapers. She's throwing these wild parties. She she has these kind of always playing with the boundaries of respectability, sometimes treading over them, uh, talking, you know, she's renowned as a great poker player, all of this stuff, has, lives a fun life. Um, whereas Um Kalsum starts to build this much more uh, respectable image around herself, uh, partly in fact she does it by basically not talking to the press or maintaining this boundary around her personal life and her, the life of her performance. So she, you know, she doesn't really give interviews. She doesn't, unlike Fatima Rushdie say, she doesn't tour much uh, around the Arab world, at least until, until the 1930s, that's her first tour. When she is interviewed ever, she kind of gives these quite, you know, quite evasive answers about, and, and she says what she really likes to do is read, doesn't talk much about her personal life. Uh, and this grows into a kind of much more respectable image. And, and she is then throughout the 30s and 40s, uh, and, and in fact, really throughout the 50s and 60s too, she tries to sort of cultivate her image. I mean, everyone in this period is cultivating an image of some kind, but the one that she tries to portray is a restrained, more respectable one. As you say, she says in, in, in like later memoirs that she never sung taktukas, Whereas in fact, if you go through the performance uh, kind of notices at the time, you, see, you will see that she did sing Taktuka sometimes, uh, but the image that she builds around herself is, is not one of that. And perhaps this is part of the reason why she, unlike Munira Matea, is more remembered as a, um, uh, as, a, as a great star because she is able to, you know, become the face, the respectable face of a nation everyone can be proud of. Uh, whereas Munira Matea, uh, I mean, I think consciously slightly subverts all of that uh, kind of, she doesn't, Munira Matea doesn't want anyone to be proud of her. I don't think she wants people to respect her and, and uh, you know, admire her, but I think not to be proud of her in the same way that Um Kalsum did. You mentioned that we start to see the decline of uh, Azbekia as we know it and the theater did district, if you described it, around the late 1930s, I guess, challenged by both film and then another trend which you describe as a kind of cabaret uh, personified uh, by Badia Masapni. Tell us a little about her and, and this evolution. Well, yeah, I mean, Badia Masapni, another, another woman, Badia Masapni, who has this great rags to riches story, uh, who, who starts, in fact, starts her cabaret in the 1920s. Uh, really gets going and she maybe more than everyone else really emphasizes her own creative independence and how being financially independent means creative independence and, and all this stuff and she she has a boom in the 1920s but really I mean maybe reaches her peak in the early 1930s as theatre starts to decline a little bit because you know partly for the for reasons of cinema 
uh, partly also this is the time when the depression is starting to hit so people don't have theater is it's quite an expensive thing to do and often didn't make that much money uh, you know you have to have all these actors and costumes and scripts and everything uh, whereas at a cabaret it's uh, you know you could be more guaranteed of an audience and can string things together for a little less money uh, and then when you have film competing with theater so yeah by the, by the 30s and 40s cabaret becomes uh, much bigger than theater cabaret and cinema then what we have is um, again is the second world war uh, so this kind of the golden age is kind of bookended by two wars really uh, again the British so as we said before the British had maintained certain stipulations on Egyptian independence uh, one of them uh, later being is in the event of war uh, the British could take over Egyptian air bases and things which is what they did in the second world war and really moved a lot of their soldiers into Cairo uh, but Diyama Subni great cabaret owner of, of the late 20s and, and early 30s managed to spin this into a, a, a nice money-making opportunity she entered she opened another big casino uh, targeted largely at troops so they they put on uh sort of little sketches celebrating the allied victories and uh, making fun of hitler and, and this kind of thing um and it became very popular the the kind of place to go to but uh as as happened after the First World War, uh, after the Second World War, there was, a, there was another kind of resurgence in nationalist feeling. Um, there was a sense, uh, I mean, a quite justified sense that although the British had officially given Egypt independence in the 1920s, the Second World War had shown that the British had certainly not left Egypt. Their troops were everywhere and they were really calling a lot of the shots. Uh, and so, uh, the late 1940s is an extremely turbulent period in Egyptian politics. Uh, I mean, there's battle, you know, sort of uh, fighting in the Suez Canal zone. People try and, you know, armed Egyptian resistance tries to kick out the British soldiers who are there. There's also uh, sort of street gangs attached to various different political movements. There's the political assassinations. Uh, this is kind of the uh, atmosphere which in 1952 uh, sort of turns into the free officers revolution and kicking out the king of Egypt um, in fact in there's a sort of prelude to that in early 1952 uh, which takes place in Badia Masabni's casino uh, her famous I say casino because that's what they called it although there really wasn't gambling going on there that was just a sort of name for a nightclub uh, so what had happened one day in Ismaili in the, in the Suez Canal area, the British had uh, opened fire and killed uh, uh, a large Egyptian police battalion in what became known as the Ismaili massacre. The next day, there were these protests in, in Cairo. Uh, the protesters saw an Egyptian policeman uh, drinking with a dancer on the uh, sort of terrace of Badia Masabni's cabaret. They asked him, you know, what he was doing at a time like this, you know, when his comrades and uh, and countrymen were being killed, uh, and people set the casino on fire, sort of in protest. And then from then uh, there was this uh, riot, essentially, in which 
a large amount of Esvakea, the nightlife district, was burnt down. Many car, many bars, sorry, cabarets, cinemas, and things, uh, as well as sort of obvious signs of, of British presence. So Barclays Bank, for instance, was burnt down, um, and and this kind of represents uh, the the final moment of of that era of Egyptian nightlife, you know, the end of that particular golden age. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's slightly artificial to say that Egyptian nightlife ended after then because in fact in the 1950s and 60s, nightlife very much continued, but it, but it was very different. And then shortly after this fire, of course, NASA and the free officers uh, take control uh, and Egypt becomes a very different country in, you know, in ways that probably we don't have time to go into now. Uh, but that's usually seen, and in many ways rightly, as kind of the end point of this golden age. You see, the, and you portray the um, Egyptian divas, as uh, they're referred to, of the 1920s as, as feminists, as um, women who overcame class and social constraints, who achieved a degree of power and autonomy in, in their industry. Uh, tell us about that thesis uh, in your argument, because it's a very strong one. Uh, yeah, and in, I mean, there's a certain amount of debate whether we should call these women feminists. Uh, I mean, the so the argument against uh, calling them feminists would be, you know, for instance, uh, we asked whether they did, did a lot to help other women, you know, in some cases, uh, I think they certainly did. In the case of Rosal Yusuf, for instance, she was very keen on employing women. Uh, in some cases, maybe not Munero Matea. You know, we could say she was really just in it for her own career, a career, you know, built on perhaps the objectification of women. So, I mean, that would be the argument for saying that they're not feminists. But, but what I want to say in this book is, yes, that they are. And the reasons being... Uh, manyfold. I mean, for one, I mean, I think we've seen just by looking at a few stories of these women that they um, they show this example of living an independent life, uh, making your own money, having having freedom and kind of independence from anyone, from the patriarchy, from men, from whatever you want it to be, and and a lot of the times, I mean, they appeared many of these stars appeared giving interviews in magazines saying things that i mean you know would be considered pretty radical for anywhere in the in the 1920s saying for instance giving interviews saying that they thought marriage was uh, uh pointless you know that they uh they they really were very keen on love but thought marriage was a stupid institution and didn't want anyone to, anything to do with it uh which i think you know it's not really until uh maybe the, the 50s and 60s that that becomes a, a, uh, a widely held uh, opinion, even in, in feminist circles. Uh, and so they're out there living these independent lives, showing kind of independent models for what, what it was uh, to live. Uh, and I think, yeah, above all, uh, treading this path uh, which had not been uh, had not been available to people before, and I mean, one, so one story, uh, which I think really sums up uh, something that 
the feminism of these nightclub singers uh, is the story of Fatima Siri, who was a reasonably successful singer in the 1920s, certainly not, not stars like uh, Rosa Youssef or Manira Matea, but a good singer making a good money. She, uh, in fact, she met uh, a nice young man, so she thought, uh, the son of Hoda Sharawi, a very famous uh, feminist leader in Egypt, uh, from an aristocratic family. He, so she tells, fell in love with her. They have this, this love affair, which ends in a child uh, born in a sort of semi-official uh, state of wedlock. So what had, what had happened, uh, according to Fatima Siri, we really know the story from a long account that she leaves in a newspaper. Uh, what had happened was that they had signed a kind of unofficial, what's known as Orfi uh, marriage, uh, by which, uh, which was sort of not gone through the state, but to be recognized. Uh, they were living together, they had this child, uh, but after this child is born, uh, her lover refuses to recognize it. Uh, normally, I mean, previously, that would have been the end of the story. She'd been sort of, uh, she'd had a love affair, which had had a child, the man had run away, what can you do? Um, but in uh, her case, what she does is take it to the courts, as no one before her had done, uh, supported largely because she had this income stream through singing that she could rely on. So she managed to fight through a kind of seven year, I think, court, six or seven year court case, fight for this child to be recognized and given its rights as a, uh, as a son of Mohammed Sharawi, which uh, meant, you know, a stable life uh, for, for the rest of her life, as it was uh, Layla was the name of the child. Um, so that is an example of how someone who was, before she took this court case, you know, this case, the court was just an ordinary nightclub singer, but through kind of fighting for her own rights, uh, being empowered to fight for her own rights, both by the atmosphere of the 1920s and by the fact that she was making her own money, uh, can make a real sort of serious difference in the public sphere of Egypt. I mean, and set a legal precedent of the earth, being the first woman to really do this and win. Raphael Cormac, thank you for joining us today and talking about Midnight in Cairo, a great read, and then the outstanding and original contribution to Egypt's social history. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's been fun. We will be back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings 
talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Thanks again to our guest, Raphael Cormack, for joining us today to discuss his book, Midnight in Cairo. And thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of Almonitor and Beowulf Rochelin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will return next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other Almonitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.